This is In the Trenches, Broadcast 29. Welcome to In the Trenches, where entrepreneurs, artists, writers, designers, inventors, warriors, and leaders share their stories of doing the hard, creative work that impacts all of our lives. Let the journey inspire you to do something worthwhile, build something bold, and create your life's work. And now, your host, Tom Morgus. Welcome back, everyone, to another broadcast of In the Trenches. Today's guest is Liam Veach, the founder of FreelanceLift.com. And Liam is also the author of this soon-to-be-released, and as of the posting of this podcast, it should be in its launch, a book called Stop Thinking Like a Freelancer, The Evolution of a $1 Million Web Designer. So we're going to dig into... Liam's backstory a little bit. We're going to talk a little bit about freelancelift.com. And then I want to focus on his book and uh, you know how he's launching it and the story behind it, the fact that he got to a million dollars as a freelancer, which is pretty incredible. So Liam, thanks so much for being on the show with us today. No problem, Tom. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I did a quick intro. I don't think it does you justice at all. So, <laughs> so tell us a little bit about your background, man. So yeah, I mean, as the title suggests, one million dollar web designer. You know, the caveat that I always uh, put in front of that is, you know, this is cumulative over that three year period. I mean, that three year period started obviously three years ago in 2011 when I set up a freelance business alongside my full time uh, position. So the kind of backstory to that is that I only ended up in that full time position after being a failure as a freelancer. So. In 2009, I threw in the towel and I was done as a, as a freelance designer. And then I went to join a, a multinational corporate. So at the the place where I was at there, there was 400 plus employees. And it was something clicked as that kind of career started to develop, you know, things that I was missing last time around as a freelancer. So just big business principles. And, and I kind of realized that some things big business is great at freelancers, small businesses in general suck at. And then the other side of that is the things that small businesses are great at, corporations aren't so great at, you know, so agility, love, care, and passion, and that kind of stuff. So what I wanted to do, and it, this took me the penny dropping in, in a sort of an all-hands meeting, um, it took me to think, okay, what would happen if you mashed those two worlds together? That was when I started again. Started, I made a vow to start this thing again and do it properly this time. And that was, as I say, three years ago. And in the time, it's been a bit of a whirlwind. Um, I've picked up so many things and implemented them all in this business, and it is really bearing fruit. So what I wanted to do in, in this book was lay out all of that. Um, I've got some pretty unique points of view on that that are all, again, backed up with with what's what's happened in those three years and you know from chatting to, to other freelancers. So yeah, my background is is that really. I've you know been in business for most of my adult life. Uh, first business was you know, aged around nineteen, so I've only ever had that one full time position. So I had a, a unique point of view insofar as I was looking at the things that the other zombie employees, as I call them, were just not looking at. They didn't really care too much for the the business's mission or the values or its vision and where it wanted to go. And as a result, they're probably going to still be at that company now, and that's where I think I've been able to steal some of that knowledge, steal some of those big business principles and really break them down and put them into practice for, for small businesses and, and freelancers. So uh, about a year ago, I established freelancelift.com to just tell that story because that was something that was really missing my first time around as a freelancer. The difficulty is with the freelancer 
space as it relates to content and blogs and things like that is that they're all framed within that context of being a freelancer. So as freelancers, we often feel that we're somehow exempt from that word business. And that's really due to our status really as a, as a lone ranger. And in some ways that keeps us tied to this, what I would call so-so freelancer advice and you know, chasing ambiguous words like growth, which when you're not achieving growth, you feel like you're treading water. But you know, a lot of times when I ask people, when they ask me this question, I feel like I'm treading water. I come right back to them and say, well, how do you really know how you're doing if you've not got clear objectives and goals in place. So what I wanted to do was, was break down all of my knowledge and put that into a book. And that's kind of taken us up to present really. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about the path to 1 million. That's no small task over the course of three years, especially mm. for a freelancer when I think a lot of freelancers, and I, I know you read about this and you, you speak to this, struggle with you know getting paid what they're worth, so to speak. So tell us a little bit about that, that path. Yeah. It really started when I figured out that, look, as businesses, your clients aren't hiring you because you're a designer, developer, marketer, writer, or whatever. They're hiring you because they have a business problem. Not only that, they're going to look for the people that are solving that problem already for people. So if you can be the specialist, if you can serve that specific need, and if you can do that, even for a small pool of clients, then you've got immediately the chance to, to build 10 times more. Um, so the path I originally started down um, was was for the music industry. So I was a web designer for the music industry and a lot of freelancers. And this, again, goes for most small businesses, actually, feel that somehow they're missing out by narrowing the pool of potential clients. But quite the opposite is true. You know, if you, if you have only literally got a pool of two, three hundred people around the world that you could go after, then really, if you're that go to guy for that particular space, then you've got pretty much a blank check really that you can begin to request from people you know so the path to 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 that million dollars really started in understanding that it's all about specificity and not only that understanding specificity and how that applies to what somebody's pains are so i have this pain if you can articulate that better than they can then you've got an instant position of authority and you can use that to your advantage when it comes to laying out a price and a cost so one of the things that I teach, uh, and I've got a short book on this, it's called Hourly Rates Don't Matter, is that everything is based on perception. A client's perception of what value you're going to bring to the table is everything. So I make the comparison between the what I call the laborer and the partner. So a laborer is the, the guy or gal that you, you go to on Fiverr, you spend $5, you tell them specifically what to do, they deliver that, and everybody's kind of happy with that situation. What a partner will do is, in the outset, not really even talk costs, say, okay, well, talk to me, what are your problems? And understand that it's not really a one-hit thing. This is a long-term, mutually beneficial partnership. So when you're starting down that path, it's vital to start to consider yourself as A, a partner, and B, as valuable, and then lock into a certain section of uh, of potential clients. So that's where that journey started and then from there it was it was a case of yeah building um, an authority in that space being the go-to company for that type of activity and then growing from there into other areas so um, the the agency which now kind of carries most of that that, that million dollars is an agency in the UK that I founded called Tone. And the, the URL there is tone.co.uk. And what we pride ourselves on is 
what we call world-class web design. And we frame that in all of our customer-facing literature as, look, there is no point building a website unless it's going to provide value to you as a business and establish you as a market leader. So instantly we built a frame there that's, that can quite conceivably have a, a larger price tag. So in the first instance, it's definitely specializing in on a certain specific, a certain sector uh, of an audience, then looking to build a relationship that's based on a mutually beneficial partnership. And then from there being, being, yeah, happy to put a higher price tag on your work because you know that, look, I've done this before for this person and that person, this has generated them X. This is what it costs because I value my services or value my skills. So that's really where it started. And then, you know, from there, it's just about building that average average transaction value. You know, we uh, the, the latest project that we built, uh, I've written about this, was uh, a 50K, $50,000 project uh, for just a website. And we never met them um, face-to-face. They were they're based in Southeast Asia. And we only actually went to, to see them and meet them face-to-face after winning the deal. So even online, it, it just works. So as I say, that comes from just being a trusted authority in a space providing value because you know they could have gone to they could have gone to elance.com and probably got the same thing for a thousand dollars you know and and it's that really of framing yourself such that you command value does that kind of answer the question it does now tell me a little bit about that though like i think there's a little bit more to it too than than just well, I think framing is, is essential for sure, but then you yeah. obviously are capable of delivering that as well too. So yeah. where's that kind of fine line too? You have to position yourself the right way, but then you have to, I, I would assume, over-deliver on your results and stuff like that. So so tell me a little bit about that. Like, How much extra effort does it take to become that kind of market leader, that that authority in your niche? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. I mean, I'll kind of, I'll just, I'll answer that in a second. I think what we have understood um, is that really it's about the lifetime value of a customer. So I, I ran some numbers um, a few weeks ago, and what we found was that over the last 18 months, from initial order to lifetime spend, on average, about 60% are using us again, 60% of customers. And then on average, they're spending over 100% more over that 18-month period. And that, you know, when you are able to almost rely upon that, then building you know a pipeline that's going to generate a million dollars over the course of three years isn't such a stretch because you know that okay well if you know 60 percent are going to come again and if on average they're going to spend 136 percent more which they are doing at the moment then the objective becomes a little bit less so to answer the question what we do is build that right into what we're doing so we always have sort of even a 25 30 percent contingency which we don't really tell the client about but which we allow internally for just over delivering and a good example actually is that this moment in time we're building a web project that has the client has some really specific ideas and have a specific vision about what they want and in particular this is for like a home page slider so what we're having to do is almost put together a custom photo shoot to get that specific image we've not built them for that we've not included that in the proposal and we're just doing it but what we are doing at every every point is doing it and then telling them that we're over delivering. It's that thing of, you know, if you uh, ask for more money off somebody, then it just immediately puts them out of joint. If you tell them, look, this wasn't included in the proposal. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to do this because in the spirit of partnership, we want to make this 
the best possible site it can be. We want a site that we can all be proud of. And immediately when you frame it like that and tell them that you're over-delivering, tell them that you're not going to build them for it, then you build an element of reciprocity into everything that you're doing. So they say, oh, yeah, okay, okay I, I like these guys because they are helping us and together we will build something that we're all proud of. So I think, again, I would probably recommend, it depends on how much time that you do have, but where possible, always over-deliver, but then it's crucially important that you tell them you are over-delivering. You lay out the fact that, okay, this wasn't in the proposal, but we're going to do it anyway, and in the spirit of partnership. If you establish yourself as a partner, if you establish yourself as an expert, you become an asset to that business. So even if it's something that's not in your wheelhouse, they'll come to you and say, yeah, I've got a problem with uh, this and this. If you have answers at your fingertips and you're giving them them answers, they're not going to go anywhere again. They're going to come back to you at every point and they're going to trust you as an extension of their business. So yes, it's over delivery, but it's telling them at every stage that you are over delivering and then locking yourself in with them as a mutually beneficial partner. I can't stress that enough that when clients are building a project, what they don't want is for to be told that things are out of scope, out of you know range and not in the proposal and things like that because at the end of the day, they will not come and spend 136% again over the next 18-month period. So over-deliver and, and yeah, tell them that you're over-delivering. I love that. And it's funny because the way I understand it when I hear you is you essentially kind of bake in over-delivering into the process. So that's like, yeah, that's right. it's what you, when you go into it, you you recognize that you're, you, that I guess, suppose when you, you do the proposal for the client that you're, mm. you know, you're saying that there's going to be extra things I'm going to do on top of this. And you, you understand that and they might not be aware of it. And then that's, mm. that's going to be kind of your, I, I guess, I don't know what you would describe. Yeah, I mean, that's it's just a, a great touch. Though. It's a tool for building yeah. a longer term relationship. And, and it, yeah, yeah. And, and it's, it's not something that you're explicit about, you know, in, in the outset, you know, what you are explicit about is, look, we're in this together. We're going to bring, bring ideas to the table. We're going to tell you if we think that your vision is not quite correct. And we're going to do that from X, Y, Z experience. That's enough to, to get you in the door. But what gets you that doubling of spend over a, over an 18 month period is that, is the things that you can't really quantify is that that feel good factor you know that the client's experiencing when yeah. they're seeing that you're over delivering and and yeah like i say we don't tell the client about it initially other than to say look we're your partner on this but then when it's happening it gives you so much leverage for if you do actually generally need to build them more because if you give them a little bit of a, an overspend and and tell them that you're doing it and then don't build them for it. And the next time that that kind of thing comes around again and, you know, you look at what we've spent so far and you say, mm, look, this is going beyond now. We just need to have a, a boundary of reasonableness or, you know, that kind of thing. And the more than happy to kind of go along with that. So, yeah, so it's about over-delivering, telling them that you're over-delivering and then, yeah, just baking that straight into your pricing from the outset. And it's that thing of being a partner. Um, that's the only way that you can start to do that kind of stuff because if you're so specific and you're taking instructions from a client then there's really no room to maneuver anywhere within that especially if you know your whole price is based on you know an hourly rate yeah you know and i think a bigger piece of this too or at least an equivalently important piece uh, is not only you mentioned that it's the enjoyment factor the wow factor that that these clients get but it's a trust factor too because yeah. when you when you not only deliver but you over deliver and you do these like extra you go the extra mile 
I think that's honestly, this would be my, my prediction here, but I, I'd like to hear what you say about this. But I think the reality is that so many companies and so many, whether it's smaller, or well, medium size, are really just looking for people that they can trust to do business mm-hmm. with. And so when, yeah. you, when you bake this into your, your service and how you offer it and how you del- over deliver, I think that builds trust. It's an, it, just an incredible way of building trust. Yeah, yeah, and, and and I mean, there's also a second part to that as well, which is that the the higher up the chain you go in terms of like order values and things like that, then the more freedom you have. Funnily, you know, if you're building a, a website for somebody that um, has, you know, they have a really specific idea of what they want you to do, and it's going to cost they, they they've got a budget of five hundred dollars or five hundred pounds or whatever it might be, they're going to give you a much harder time than than, than somebody that's going to spend fifty k because they trust you to carry out that work on their behalf. And that, that, you know, that is ultimately where you should be building towards. I mean, it's not, you know, it's not something that, that happens overnight, you know, for us to get to those levels, it has taken two years, you know, two, three years to be able to stand in front of somebody and say, yeah, you know, you can get it for a hundredth of the, of the price, but what you're not going to get is all of this. And if you can back that up with people that are happy to, to talk about you, and again, this is where the partnership thing comes in as well, that 50K deal, um, that hinged really on um a glowing testimonial uh, that we received from somebody who we had done a similar job for that were in a similar space to them uh, to that i mean they were, they were both charities actually as it goes so they felt that trust and felt that that kind of partnership and credibility from a third party that only happens if you are again over delivering building a partnership and building trust into into that relationship you can only leverage that if you're doing a really good job of it yeah absolutely so let's jump into the book Tell us a little bit about what's actually going to be in this book. Is it these topics that we're talking about right now? Is this mm. what we can expect when we read the book? Yeah, yeah. So back down to knowing where to go and chasing ambiguous words like growth. So growth is too ambiguous. I only use it when it's in a specific context. But often freelancers look around and say, yeah, I feel like I'm doing okay, but I, I, I need growth. But they don't really pin down what growth is. So there are two threads, really. The first thread is that as freelancers, we feel like you know we're somehow exempt from that, that word business. When, if you look at it, in terms of raw facts, we have customers, we have overheads, even as a one-person business. We're customers, we have overheads, we have a need to go out in there and, and pitch our services to people. Um, and and yeah, we need to make profit. That's exactly the same for a one-person freelancer as it is for Google and Amazon and Microsoft. So by ignoring the big business principles which makes those guys successful, you're ignoring the potential for your own growth. So that's the first thing, understanding that we, as freelancers, and again, this goes for all small businesses, especially online, we should be thinking more objectively about our business, looking for real ways to grow based on facts, data, benchmarking, goals, and and aiming towards that. So that's the first thing that we should stop thinking like freelancers or or, or for uh, small businesses. We should think like businesses and look at the way that bigger businesses go about things. And the second thing is that not having a clear idea of what growth actually is. Is it it growth in revenue? If so, how much? Is it growth in happiness? Is it growth in client quality? All these things can be left up in the air a little bit when you're chasing an ambiguous word like growth. So Instead of that, what I propose is a new word, and that word is evolution. We all understand what evolution is. It's continually getting better, continual improvement. And if you can chart your progress through that evolutionary cycle, then you can say, oh, okay, look back at six months from now and say, yeah, yeah, that's different, that's better. And looking at specific benchmarks and specific data. 
So it's that really. The first thing is, you know, stop thinking like a freelancer or stop thinking like a, a one-man band and start thinking like a business and then stop chasing ambiguous words like growth and instead look for evolution. Evolution is continually getting better. Evolution is exciting, fun, and it ultimately builds momentum because you're continually knocking down small goals. And they really come into, into four areas, really, five areas. This is an evolutionary growth cycle because the great thing about it is, and this is why I've broken it into, into a cycle as such, is that because evolution never stops, once you've made one kind of lap of the circuit, you can go again and accept, build higher goals and targets this time. So the first one is getting evolution ready. So this is just foundations of growth, strategy, vision, benchmarking, looking at where you're going to go. Um, the second one is replacing bad clients with dream clients or repelling bad apples and attracting dream clients, as I, as I refer to it in the book. And the third one is, that second one, sorry, is, is more about perception. And that's all this kind of good stuff about being a partner and that we were just talking about then. The third one is just multiplying exposure and building a platform. Again, the, the top bracket freelancers are all renowned in their place, in their space, sorry. So when they go on, and again, there's a good example uh, from a guy called Paul Jarvis, who is a web designer for creative entrepreneurs, as he calls them. So what he did was say, okay, maybe these guys exist on places like Forbes.com, Inc.com. So what he did was make it a mission to go and be visible in those locations. So he's visible in those locations. He's putting out great content that's kind of relating back to him and his service. He's pushing people back to his site and his calendar is booked up till May, 2015. And his rate is, is huge, but it's justified by the fact that it's, it's kind of blocked up for six months. So when he opens his calendar out again, he's got no shortage of people wanting to come and use his services because he's been able to multiply that exposure and, and build that platform. You know, Fourth phase within the book is looking at leveling out the income roller coaster. As freelancers, and again, the same goes really for most small online businesses. It's very much sort of feast and famine, an income roller coaster, as I call it. So the fourth phase is just building predictability into the business. So that's looking at, okay, how do we increase the lifetime value of this customer? How do we make it so that we can have money coming in, in even in the, the slow weeks by building products and things like that? And generally making it a little bit more stable because it's a hundred times easier to say no to a bad Apple client if you know that next week you've got X amount of, uh, of revenue coming in. You know, if you can stabilize your business in that way, then it means that you're in a much stronger position to work only on projects that, that you want to work on. So it's vitally important. And the fifth thing is just loosening the reins. Obviously, we're all in business for, for, for our own different motivations, but one of them always is freedom, you know, so that freedom often doesn't happen for freelancers when they are starting out or when they're struggling. You know, often they're w working double the amount of hours they would in a job for probably half the pay. So in the fifth phase, once we've got all these other levels achieved, then what we'll look to do is to loosen the reins. So how can we build processes into the business which can take you out of the chain? How can you leverage your remote team? How can you make things quicker, more efficient? And generally, how can you build a business that's going to survive and, and thrive without you in it or with you faded out a little bit, you know, and I'm not proposing a four hour work week. That's not what we're, what we're looking for here because ultimately that's not, I don't see that as being the real goal for a lot of uh, small business owners. Maybe it is if you're, if you're genuinely just chasing money and a, you know, lifestyle business. But I think, 
in some ways it's less satisfying to, to do that. So I think a lot of people will be satisfied with 20, 30 hours a week, have lots of time to do nice things and be able to go actually go on vacation. You know, one of the key things that, that, that freelancers and small businesses struggle with is, look, I've got to be here to do the work, which is going to give me the revenue. So it's not, it's not viable to take two weeks out entirely because I won't have a you know house by, by that by the end of that period. So fifth one is is yeah, just working less while earning at least the same, if not more. And then again, once you've gone through all those five phases, then you can head back to point one, getting evolution ready again and saying, okay, well, what's my next objective? And all this is framed within the, you know, within clear objectives and building clear goals. So it's a cyclical thing. And yeah, it comes from my experiences and the experiences of the tennis or other freelancers that I've talked to in as building, you know, when I've been building this book. This is awesome. I love this, this growth cycle and really powerful stuff. So, Hey man, I just want to say thank you so much for being on the show. Where can people reach out and, and connect with you and actually get access to this book when you launch? Sure. Yeah. So if you head to freelancelift.com, I'm going to be putting it in the nav very shortly. So you'll see it at the top. It'll just say we're 1M freelancer. I think will be the, will be the kind of navigational item there. But yeah, it'll be all over the site anyway once, once we're launched. And for the first five days, it's free. So there is absolutely no excuse but to get on it. So, so yeah, thanks for having me. Liam, it was great, man. So much valuable content. And I'm going to make sure everything's linked up in the show notes. And I'm going to encourage everybody to download the book. So, hey, man, thanks again for being on the show. No worries. Thank you. And that wraps up In the Trenches, Broadcast 29. If you enjoyed today's broadcast and you'd like to check out the show notes, just go to tomworkus.com slash broadcast 29. As always, this is Tom Morcus. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Thank you for listening to In the Trenches. Your creative work doesn't stop here. Join the resistance, the small but growing army of entrepreneurs and artists putting a dent in the world at www.tommorkis.com. Never fight alone. Join the resistance. <laughs>